Part three, chapter number eight of the Man of Property. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Harnick. The Foresight Saga, The Man of Property, by John Galsworthy. Part three. Chapter Eight: Bosinney's Departure. Old Jolyon was not given to hasty decisions. It is probable that he would have continued to think over the purchase of the house at Robin Hill, had not June's face told him that he would have no peace until he acted. At breakfast next morning, she asked him what time she should order the carriage carriage he said with some appearance of innocence what for i am not going out she answered if you don't go early you won't catch uncle james before he goes into the city james what about your uncle james the house she replied in such a voice that he no longer pretended ignorance I have not made up my mind, he said. You must, you must, oh, Grant, think of me. Old Jolyon grumbled out. Think of you? I am always thinking of you, but you don't think of yourself. You don't think what you are letting yourself in for. Well, order the carriage at ten. At a quarter past, he was placing his umbrella in the stand at Park Lane. He did not choose to relinquish his hat and coat. Telling Warmson that he wanted to see his master, he went, without being announced, into the study and sat down. James was still in the dining-room talking to Soames, who had come round again before breakfast. On hearing who his visitor was, he muttered nervously, now what does he want i wonder he then got up well he said to soames don't you go doing anything in a hurry the first thing is to find out where she is i should go to stainers about it they are the best men if they can't find her nobody can and suddenly moved to strange softness he muttered to himself Poor little thing, I can't tell what she was thinking about, and went out blowing his nose. Old Jolyon did not rise on seeing his brother, but held out his hand and exchanged with him the clasp of a foresight. James took another chair by the table and leaned his head on his hand. Well, he said, how are you? We don't see much of you nowadays. Old Jolyon paid no attention to the remark. How is Emily? he asked, and waiting for no reply went on. I have come to see you about this affair of young Bosinney's. I am told that new house of his is a white elephant. I don't know anything about a white elephant, said James. I know he has lost his case, and I should say he will go bankrupt. Old Jolyon was not slow to seize the opportunity this gave him. I shouldn't wonder a bit, he agreed, and if he goes bankrupt, 
the man of property that is Soames will be out of pocket. Now, what I was thinking was this, if he is not going to live there. Seeing both surprise and suspicion in James's eye, he quickly went on. I don't want to know anything. I suppose Irina has put her foot down. It is not material to me. But I am thinking of a house in the country myself, not too far from London, and if it suited me, I don't say that I might not look at it at a price. James listened to this statement with a strange mixture of doubt, suspicion and relief, merging into a dread of something behind and tinged with the remains of his old undoubted reliance upon his elder brother's good faith and judgment. There was anxiety, too, as to what old Jolyon could have heard and how he had heard it, and a sort of hopefulness arising from the thought that if June's connection with Bosini were completely at an end, her grandfather would hardly seem anxious to help the young fella. Altogether he was puzzled, as he did not like either to show this or to commit himself in any way, he said, They tell me you are altering your will in favour of your son. He had not been told this. He had merely added the fact of having seen old Jolyon with his son and grandchildren to the fact that he had taken his will away from Forsyth Busted and Forsyth. The shot went home. Who told you that? asked old Julian. I'm sure I don't know, said James. I can't remember names. I know somebody told me Soames spent a lot of money on this house. He's not likely to part with it except at a good price. Well, said old Julian, if he thinks I'm going to pay a fancy price, he is mistaken. I have not got the money to throw away that he seems to have. Let him try and sell it at a forced sale and see what he will get. It is not every man's house, I hear. James, who was secretly also of this opinion, answered, It's a gentleman's house. Soames is here now, if you would like to see him. No, said old Julian, I have not got as far as that, and I am not likely to. I can see that very well if I am met in this manner. James was a little cowed. When it came to the actual figures of a commercial transaction, he was sure of himself, for then he was dealing with facts, not with men. But preliminary negotiations such as these made him nervous. He never knew quite how far he could go. Well, he said, I know nothing about it. Soames, he tells me nothing. I should think he would entertain it. It is a question of price. Oh, said old Julian, don't let him make a favour of it. He placed his hat on his head in dudgeon. The door was opened and Soames came in. There is a policeman out here, he said with his half-smile, for Uncle Julian. Old Julian looked at him angrily and James said, A policeman? I don't know anything about a policeman. But I suppose you know something about him, he added to old Jolyon with a look of suspicion. I suppose you had better see him. 
In the hall an inspector of police stood stolidly regarding with heavy-lidded pale blue eyes the fine old furniture picked up by James at the famous Mavrojano sale in Portman Square. You'll find my brother in there, said James. The inspector raised his fingers respectfully to his peaked cap and entered the study. James saw him go in with a strange sensation. Well, he said to Soames, I suppose we must wait and see what he wants. Your uncle has been here about the house. He returned with Soames into the dining room, but could not rest. Now what does he want, he murmured again. Who, replied Soames, the inspector? They sent him round from Stanhope Gate, that is all I know. That nonconformist of Uncle Julian's has been pilfering, I shouldn't wonder. But in spite of his calmness, he too was ill at ease. At the end of ten minutes, old Julian came in. He walked up to the table and stood there perfectly silent, pulling at his long white moustaches. James gazed up at him with opening mouth. He had never seen his brother look like this. Old Jolyon raised his hand and said slowly, Young Bosony has been run over in the fog and killed. Then, standing above his brother and his nephew and looking down at him with his deep eyes, There is some talk of suicide, he said. James's jaw dropped. Suicide? What should he do that for? Old Jolyon answered sternly, God knows if you and your son don't. But James did not reply. For all men of great age, even for all foresights, life has had bitter experiences. The passer-by, who sees them wrapped in cloaks of custom, wealth and comfort, would never suspect that such black shadows had fallen on their roads. To every man of great age, to Sir Walter Benham himself, the idea of suicide has once at least been present in the anteroom of his soul. On the threshold, waiting to enter, held out from the inmost chamber by some chance reality, some vague fear, some painful hope. To foresights, that final renunciation of property is hard. Oh, it is hard. Seldom, perhaps never, can they achieve it. And yet, how near have they not sometimes been? So, even with James. Then, in the medley of his thoughts, he broke out. Why, I saw it in the paper yesterday, run over in the fog. They did not know his name. He turned from one face to the other in his confusion of soul. But instinctively, all the time, he was rejecting that rumor of suicide. He dared not entertain this thought, so against his interest against the interest of his son, of every foresight. He strove against it, 
and as his nature ever unconsciously rejected that which it could not with safety accept, so gradually he overcame this fear. It was an accident. It must have been. Old Jolion broke in on his reverie. Death was instantaneous. He lay all day yesterday at the hospital. There was nothing to tell them who he was. I am going there now, and you and your son had better come too. No one opposing this command, he led the way from the room. The day was still and clear and bright, and driving over to Park Lane from Stanhope Gate, old Jolyon had had the carriage open. Sitting back on the padded cushions, finishing his cigar, he had noticed with pleasure the keen crispness of the air, the bustle of the cabs and people, the strange, almost Parisian alacrity that the first fine day will bring into London streets after a spell of fog or rain. And he felt so happy. He had not felt like it for months. His confession to June was of his mind. He had the prospect of his son's, above all, of his grandchildren's company in the future. He had appointed to meet young Jolyon at the hodgepodge that very morning to discuss it again and there was the pleasurable excitement of a coming encounter a coming victory over james and the man of property in the matter of the house he had the carriage closed now he had no heart to look on gaiety nor was it right that foresight should be seen driving with an inspector of police. In that carriage, the inspector spoke again of the death. It was not so very sick just there. The driver says the gentleman must have had time to see what he was about. He seemed to walk right into it. It appears that he was very hard up. We found several pawn tickets at his rooms. His account at the bank is overdrawn, and there is this case in today's papers. His cold blue eyes travelled from one to another of the three foresights in the carriage. Old Jolyon, watching from his corner, saw his brother's face change and the brooding, worried look deepen on it. At the inspector's words, indeed, all James's doubts and fears revived. Hard up, pawn tickets, an overdrawn account. These words that had all his life been a far-off nightmare to him seemed to make uncannily real that suspicion of suicide which must on no account be entertained. He sought his son's eyes, but lynx-eyed, Taciturn, immovable, Soames gave no answering look. And to old Jolyon watching, divining the league of mutual defence between them, there came an overmastering desire to have his own son at his side, 
as though this visit to the dead man's body was a battle in which otherwise he must single-handed meet those two. And the thought of how to keep June's name out of the business kept whirring in his brain. James had his son to support him. Why should he not send for Joe? Taking out his card case, he penciled the following message. Come round at once. I have sent the carriage for you. On getting out, he gave this card to his coachman, telling him to drive as fast as possible to the Hodgepodge Club, and if Mr. Jolyon Forsyth were there, to give him the card and bring him at once. If not there yet, he was to wait till he came. He followed the other slowly up the steps, leaning on his umbrella, and stood a moment to get his breath. The inspector said, This is the mortuary, sir, but take your time. In the bare, white-walled room, empty of all but a streak of sunshine smeared along the dustless floor, lay a form covered by a sheet. With a huge steady hand, the inspector took the ham and turned it back. A sightless face gazed up at them, and on either side of that sightless, defiant face, the three foresights gazed down. In each one of them, the secret emotions, fears and pity of his own nature rose and fell like the rising, falling waves of life, whose wish those white walls barred out now forever from Bosny. And in each one of them the trend of his nature, the odd essential spring which moved him in fashions minutely, unalterably different from those of every other human being, forced him to a different attitude of thought, far from the others, yet inscrutably close, each stood thus, alone with death, silent, his eyes lowered. The inspector asked softly, You identify the gentleman, sir? Old Jolyon raised his head and nodded. He looked at his brother opposite, at that long, lean figure brooding over the dead man, with face dusky red and strained grey eyes, and at the figure of Soames, white and still by his father's side. And all that that he had felt against those two was gone like smoke in the long white presence of death. Whence comes it? How comes it? Death. Sudden reverse of all that goes before, blind setting forth on a path that leads to where? Dark quenching of the fire the heavy, brutal crushing, out that all men must go through, keeping their eyes clear and brave on to the end. Small and of no import, insects though they are, and across old Jolyon's face there flitted a gleam, for Soames murmuring to the inspector crept noiselessly away. Then suddenly James raised his eyes, there was a queer appeal in that suspicious, troubled look. I know I am no match for you, it seemed to say. 
and hunting for handkerchief. He wiped his brow, then bending sorrowful and lank over the dead man, he too turned and hurried out. Old Julian stood still as death, his eyes fixed on the body. Who shall tell of what he was thinking? Of himself, when his hair was brown like the hair of that young fella dead before him? Of himself, with his battle just beginning, the long, long battle he had loved, the battle that was over for this young man almost before it had begun, of his granddaughter, with her broken hopes, of that other woman, of the strangeness and the pity of it, and the irony inscrutable and bitter of that end, justice, there was no justice for man, for they were ever in the dark. Or perhaps in his philosophy he thought, better to be out of it, it all. Better to have done with it, like this poor youth. Someone touched him on the arm. A tear started up and wetted his eyelash. Well, he said, I am no good here. I had better be going. You'll come to me as soon as you can, Joe. And with his head bowed, he went away. It was young Jolion's turn to take his stand beside the dead man, round whose fallen body he seemed to see all the foresights, breathless and prostrated. The stroke had fallen too swiftly. The forces underlying every tragedy, forces that take no denial, working through cross-currents to their ironical end, had met and fused with a thunderclap, flung out the victim and flattened to the ground all those that stood around. Or so at all events young Julian seemed to see them lying around Bosini's body. He asked the inspector to tell him what had happened, and the latter, like a man who does not every day get such a chance, again detailed such facts as were known. There is more here, sir, however, he said, than meets the eye. I don't believe in suicide, nor in pure accident myself. It is more likely, I think, that he was suffering under great stress of mind and took no notice of things about him. Perhaps you can throw some light on these. He took from his pocket a little packet and laid it on the table. Carefully undoing it, he revealed a lady's handkerchief pinned through the folds with a pin of discoloured Venetian gold, the stone of which had fallen from the socket. A scent of dried violets rose to young Julian's nostrils. Found in his breast pocket, said the inspector, the name has been cut away. Young Jolion with difficulty answered, I'm afraid I cannot help you. But vividly there rose before him the face he had seen light up so tremulous and glad at Bosini's coming. Of her he thought more than of his own daughter, more than of them all, of her with the dark soft glance, the delicate passive face, 
waiting for the dead man, waiting even at that moment, perhaps, still and patient in the sunlight. He walked sorrowfully awake from the hospital towards his father's house, reflecting that this death would break up the Forsyte family. The stroke had indeed slipped past their defences into the very wood of their tree. They might flourish to all appearance as before, preserving a brave show before the eyes of London, but the trunk was dead, withered by the same flash that had stricken down Bosney. And now the saplings would take its place, each one a new custodian of the sense of property. Good forest of foresights, thought young Jolion, soundest timber of our land. Concerning the cause of this death, his family would doubtless reject with vigour the suspicion of suicide which was so compromising. They would take it as an accident, a stroke of fate. In their hearts they would even feel it an intervention of providence, a retribution. Had not Bosini endangered their two most priceless possessions, the pocket and the hearse? And they would talk of that unfortunate accident of young Bosini's. But perhaps they would not talk. Silence might be better. As for himself, he regarded the bus driver's account of the accident as of very little value, for no one so madly in love committed suicide for want of money, nor was Bosini the sort of fellow to set much store by a financial crisis. And so he too rejected this theory of suicide. The dead man's face rose too clearly before him gone in the heyday of his summer, and to believe thus that an accident had cut Bosini off in the full sweep of his passion was more than ever pitiful to young Jolyon. Then came a vision of Soames's home as it now was, and must be hereafter. The streak of lightning had flashed its clear, uncanny gleam on bare bones with grinning spaces between. The disguising flash was gone. In the dining room at Stanhope Gate, old Jolyon was sitting alone when his son came in. He looked very wan in his great armchair, and his eyes travelling round the walls with the pictures of still life and the masterpiece Dutch fishing boats at sunset seemed as though passing their gaze over his life, with its hopes, its gains, its achievements. Ah, Joe, he said, is that you? I have told poor little June, but that is not all of it. Are you going to Soames's? She has brought it on herself, I suppose. But somehow I can't bear to think of her, shut up there and all alone. And holding up his thin, waned hand, he clenched it. End of Part 3, Chapter 8 Bosini's Departure Recording by Eva Harnick